Hello, Pam Das here with the podcast for the April 14th to 20th issue of The Lancet. The main focus this week is around the paper documenting human-to-human transmission of bovine tuberculosis in an area of the United Kingdom. But before that, here are some other highlights from the issue. The first is a research article on a new class of anti-HIV drug, which attacks a previously untargeted enzyme. Now, there's currently a need for new antiretroviral drugs due to the existing rates of failure in current combination therapies. Now, the current study looks at the new integrase inhibitor, raltagravir, which when used in conjunction with optimised background combination therapies in patients who have either advanced HIV infection or whose existing treatments are failing, this drug is seen to be effective. Now, there are three types of enzymes which are essential to the successful replication of HIV. They are reverse transcriptase, protease and integrase. Now, integrase is responsible for insertion of HIV DNA into the host cell. Until now, all antiretroviral drugs for HIV which target enzymes have been reverse transcriptase or protease inhibitors. What the US investigators did was to divide their patients into four groups. One group received the background treatment with placebo only and the other three received the background treatment plus 200, 400 or 600 mg of raltagravir twice daily. All 178 patients across the four groups had been receiving antiretroviral therapy for an average of just under 10 years. The researchers measured the amount of HIV genetic material that's HIV RNA, in the blood of patients after 24 weeks and found that patients taking raltagravir experienced an average of 98% drop in their HIV RNA count compared with just 45% a drop in the placebo group. The number of CD4 cells were also significantly boosted in patients taking raltagravir. Patients who received the 400 mg and 600 mg doses increased their CD4 count by 113 and 94 cells per mil of blood, respectively. The study showed that raltagravir is safe, well tolerable, and effective in most of the patients. In other studies of raltagravir, which were recently presented at the 14th Conference on Retrovirus and Opportunistic Infections in LA in February 2007, showed that 60% of the patients taking the drug reduced their HIV RNA loads to below 50 copies per mil, the lowest recordable value, and only 30% of patients in the placebo group achieved this. The authors conclude that the results of this raltagravir study, in combination with the other studies, that HIV-1 integrase is a valid target for antiretroviral therapy. Indeed, in an accompanying commentary, experts are very encouraged by the findings of this study and go as far as to say that this new class of drug heralds a new era of antiretroviral therapy. The second highlight is a viewpoint looking at the global burden of childhood deafness. Now recently, the World Bank compiled a list looking at the health priorities of many agencies for attaining the Millennium Development Goals. Many of the disease control priorities were based on a complementary report about the global burden of disease, which ranked communicable and non-communicable diseases and injuries according to mortality and disability. So the UK authors of this viewpoint reviewed the disease control priorities published in this World Bank report. What they found was that although the figures in the report included adult onset hearing impairment, they excluded permanent childhood impairment and all the other child onset hearing impairments in the calculations of their burden, financial and social parameters of this disability worldwide. 
Now, of 120 million babies born per year in the developing world, an estimated 718,000 will have permanent bilateral hearing impairment as infants. Failure to detect and effectively manage permanent hearing in the first year of life has been associated with substantial and irreversible deficits in speech, linguistic and cognitive developments. Now, the World Bank report justified the exclusion of childhood onset hearing impairment on the grounds that it was already accounted for as being caused by congenital conditions, infectious diseases or injuries. But evidence suggests that a substantial portion of children have hearing impairment of unknown causation. What the authors bring attention to is that childhood hearing impairment is often overlooked and it doesn't receive the attention or the public health funding and services that it deserves. The authors argue for the inclusion of childhood hearing impairment to be an important component of the global burden of disease. And the final highlight is an editorial on whether medical students should be taught about rape. Now, last week, a report from the UK Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs highlighted the serious problem of drug-facilitated sexual assault. The report acknowledged that alcohol accounts for almost half of all drug-facilitated sexual assaults. Now, often, most people who've been sexually assaulted do not seek help from emergency departments or the police, who are trained to deal with these kind of attacks. So should other healthcare professionals be trained in the management of rape and sexual assault instead? A report from the Crown Prosecution Service shows that correct examination, evidence gathering and immediate medical care are essential but often lacking and that only 5% of reported rapes end in conviction. And one of the factors is the inconsistency in the way in which doctors examine people who've been sexually assaulted. Now, a recent survey of UK medical schools showed that only a quarter provided the teaching about sexual assault, with many thinking that this topic is far too specialised to be introduced into an undergraduate curriculum. But this is in contrast to other countries, such as Canada, where training is part of the curriculum. Now, a recent survey of UK medical schools showed that only a quarter provide teaching about sexual assault, with many thinking that this topic is too specialised for the undergraduate curriculum. This is in contrast to other countries such as Canada, where training in how to deal with victims of sexual assault is actually routinely given to medical students. So the UK survey concludes that with rape being so common and so traumatic, all medical schools should consider teaching in this area. The Lancet supports the recommendation in this survey that all medical schools should consider teaching in this area. But our main focus this week is about human transmission of bovine tuberculosis, pegged to a research article in this week's issue. Earlier, Richard Lane spoke to one of the authors of the paper, Dr Grace Smith, from the Health Protection Agency, West Midlands Public Health Laboratory in Birmingham, UK. Dr Smith discusses how bovine TB could spread by human-to-human contact. Dr. Smith, you're one of the authors of a very interesting paper in this week's issue of The Lancet, and this concerns bovine tuberculosis, but if you like, the twist of it is we're talking about human-to-human spread of bovine tuberculosis. Can you just outline the story, if you like, because it is a story, isn't it? And there was a little bit of media coverage locally at the time. We really noted that there was something different happening in October or the last month of 2005. And really, the, uh, our colleague at the Centre for Infections in Collindale called me to say, had we noticed that we were seeing more cases of bovine tuberculosis in the previous 
months of 2005 than we were used to. And bear in mind that bovine tuberculosis causes less than 1% of human disease. We were then still talking about a relatively small number of cases, seeing four or five rather than our usual two to three from across the whole of the Midlands. Just to be clear, we're talking about cases of bovine tuberculosis in human beings, not yes, in that's cattle. Right. No, in, we, we serve the human population. We, we are a, a reference facility for the, for the Midlands and we don't usually work with animal tuberculosis. When we looked at the individuals concerned, it was clear that there were a couple who had the same address, and they shared an address with a case in the previous year who lived in the same village, although not terribly close together. And the initial classical investigation focused on agricultural links and possible links that these individuals might have had with cattle or the countryside. And that really didn't throw any particular light on it. There were keen outdoor pursuits but but no very firm risk factors. We then went back and collected all the strains of bovine tuberculosis that we had cultured from humans from between 2001 up to the time of the investigation in 2006 and we applied molecular typing to those strains. When you went back and then looked across your region at all cases you identified I think 20 didn't you in a sort of three or four year period? That's right. We had 20 cases, and from those, we were able to distinguish or to tell apart all of them apart from a cluster of six. So having started off with three cases that made us suspicious that there was potential for transmission or at least a a possible common source, having looked to see whether there were agricultural links to provide that source and not found any very clearly, we then had recourse to more modern molecular techniques to direct us back to focus on the six patients whose strains could not be distinguished by these molecular techniques. So you identified, if you like, a peculiarity in six cases, if you like, compared with your whole reference group, wasn't it, of 20 cases. What were you then able to do? This is a real detective kind of story, isn't it, in terms of tracing the links? We then, having already got the information that we weren't looking particularly for agricultural links or that the agricultural links were not strongly suggestive of a source one would expect for bovine tuberculosis, we then asked a much broader range of questions. And one of the authors, Dr. Banerjee, applied a standardised questionnaire asking the individual patients about their leisure pursuits, where they went to worship, their jobs, and a broader group of questions to try and establish whether there was a, a link. And really applying the same methodology as looking for links between cases of human tuberculosis, suspecting transmission between, from one patient to another, rather than with bovine tuberculosis, one is concerned, has classically been concerned about a, an animal source. Because many of these cases were not living or particularly active in rural areas, so acquisition of bovine TB from an agricultural source, you had to rule out, presumably. Yes, that's absolutely right. And in fact, the, the cases that came to light as being part of the cluster, the later cases, cases four, five and six, certainly had no agricultural or rural connections at all. And what were the connections? Well, the connections became very much focused on social matters. So cases one, two and three lived in the same area but were known to attend a bar. But cases two and three and four, we think, had the opportunity to meet cases five and six uh, in the nightclub scene of Birmingham. Assuming that that was the case, and you're pretty sure, aren't you, that that these social locations were the cause of infection, we're talking about human-to-human 
transmission of bovine TB, how would that have happened? Well, the other important factor about these cases is that they took quite a long time to come to medical attention. But when we were able to find out how long they had been unwell, we found that they had had pulmonary disease, which would have meant that they were quite infectious because there would have been coughing up the bacterium and the aerosol produced would have been infectious to other people. Because they had been unwell for quite some time before they sought medical attention, they would have been infectious over a matter of months. So after repeated visits to various social venues, there's an opportunity presented many times over for other people to be infected. Because of just exhalation of breath in a crowded nightclub? Yes, and and nightclubs provide an ideal opportunity. They can be quite loud places, so people tend to shout, so expectorating or or certainly projecting the aerosol rather, rather more forcibly. So they would be very conducive places, if you like, for people with respiratory infection to pass it from one person to another. And sadly, of course, of these six cases, uh, one, case four, I think, actually died. Yes, that's right. Case four developed uh, infection of the uh, central nervous system and developed infection in in the CSF and meningeal TB and died of meningitis. But in terms of what happened then, how did public health measures then get on top of the situation? The main thrust of the public health measure in controlling the situation was identifying those patients and treating them. And that had happened um, prior to us making the linkage, if you like, between the individuals. Once you've identified those patients who are still infectious and started them on treatment, you pretty rapidly stop those patients being infectious to others. But then we had to extend the investigation to see whether we could detect any other people who'd been infected but who'd not yet developed open disease or come to medical attention. And that is really following the classic pattern of public health measures for human tuberculosis. So we would start and focus on the close contacts, the household contacts or the workplace contacts of each individual case. And in terms of the overall message, this occurred in a very specific part of central England in the UK, but the issues are generalisable, aren't they? Because putting it into context, bovine TB and its potential spread to human beings has been controlled, for example, by the pasteurisation of milk, the culling of cattle once they're found to have TB. So certainly in the UK and and in other countries, there are already public health measures there. This presumably is a clear message to say, whilst it's rare, human to human transmission of bovine TB is still possible. Yes, it is. It's it's a message to say, as we point out in the paper, a number of these patients were more susceptible to developing disease with um, tuberculosis if infected and were infectious for quite lengthy periods. The pattern of their clinical disease was quite indistinguishable from human tuberculosis and progressed quite rapidly. And so the message here is not necessarily just to focus on any potential agricultural sources, but to apply just as rigorous public health methods to the control of bovine tuberculosis as to a classical tuberculosis. And that, in this particular case, has been successful. Dr Smith, thank you very much for talking to The Lancet. You're welcome. Thank you. Dr. Gray Smith concluding this week's podcast. Thanks for listening. Richard Lane will be back here as normal. See you next week. Bye now.